Doctor Podcast. Got to get it on. Gary, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a picture over the John in the uh, one of the bathrooms here. Look new to me that has Get It On in the title from the 60s. What is that? It's a piece of fan art. There's been there's a lot of fan art that's been sent in over the years. I thought it was real. I thought it was like a record a record cover or something. No, no. It's just, uh, it's just cool stuff that people have sent in and we're starting to try to display more of. Uh, I see. Well, thank you for that. So we got to get it on. Here we are again. Doctor Podcast. Appreciate you guys supporting the people that support us. And uh, do check out some of the other stuff. Uh, the streaming shows have gotten a lot of... Uh, interesting heat lately. Um, just talked to Doctor uh, to Senator Ron Johnson and just some interesting people who have been sort of marginalized during the COVID pandemic. And there's a lot of information to be learned there. Not not all of it's necessarily do I agree with, but a lot of it is interesting. And that's how we refine our points of view is by taking people who have differing opinions and listening to them, and then incorporating some of that into our own ideas or refining our own ideas so we understand them more clearly. As a po- in juxtaposition to some of these other interesting ideas. As I've said over and over, the term misinformation and disinformation has never existed in my career. It was always just interesting or alternative. Hmm. Rob K. Henderson is the substack I want you to go to. You guys know Rob Henderson from this show. Uh, numerous uh, articles on Quillette.com, America exports cancel culture to the world, why white privilege is wrong. I want to get into all that as well. But most, we need to get your ass over to Rob K. Henderson, H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, at .substack.com, and also follow him on Twitter, where you will learn a bit of social psychology, Rob K. Henderson, and the website is robkhenderson.com. Rob, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Dr. Drew. Great to be here. I will sketch your life so we don't have to go through that again. Can you refine anything that I get wrong? Uh, Rob had a traumatic, tumultuous childhood, ended up um, doing some not-so-great things, but ended up in the military, which was sort of a salvation, and through some of the military um, scholarly pursuits or military um, scholarships, I guess. It was probably a scholarship. Well, GI Bill. GI Bill. He was able to get a bachelor's in science from Yale uh, and then went on to study social psychology and evolutionary psychology at Cambridge where he's getting his PhD as we speak. Well, I just finished that up. Oh, congratulations. You defended? Thank you. All done? Defended, passed, all good. So what are you going to do now? Yeah, that's uh, that's the question (laughs) everyone, uh, everyone asks me. I will probably keep doing more or less what I've what I've been doing. I guess since since we last spoke, did, I, did we? I don't know if we got into this last time, but I so I accepted uh, a faculty fellow position at this new university, the University of Austin. Um, oh my UATX god! Fascinating! Texas. I love that. Yeah. That's a, that's the yeah, yeah. Uh, now. Wait a minute. There's two. I get confused on these two two projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One is where they have campuses all over the world. And they only take like twelve students, and they have to learn the languages wherever they go. And then University okay. of Austin is just. Um, Back to basics, if I remember right. Yeah, Back yeah. So, so of, it just, yeah. Um, yeah, it it was it was announced. I think a little over a year ago. Yes. Uh, in in collaboration with it with a variety of people. So the former president of St. John's College, Pano Canelos, he left St. John's uh, to become the president of this new university. Uh, Barry Weiss uh, is one of the founders. Uh, many other people involved. A lot of a lot of notable people on the board of advisors. I'm on the board of advisors as well. But we have you know other high profile figures, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Larry Summers. Uh, many other people um, who, you know, have some, uh, you know, so, some critiques of the way that the sort of formal higher education system is going, these sort of legacy institutions. And so, yeah, we're trying to build something new out in Texas. Uh, but the, the the first class isn't starting. The official sort of first, you know, four-year bachelor's degree program isn't launching, I think, until 2024. 
Um, so we're a little ways out, but we've already announced and we're doing summer programs right now. So I'll be out there this summer teaching summer courses for, for some Great. of the undergrads. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, as well, you know, working on my sub stack, um, uh, putting the final touches on my book and yeah, I mean, that's, that's keeping me busy. I'm also recording some lectures, uh, for Jordan Peterson. He just announced this, I think on Twitter, uh, Peterson Academy, which is uh, he and Michaela, they're calling it uh, Netflix for nerds, uh, which is, uh, you know, you basically pay, you know, some monthly subscription and you get access to um, lectures. It's sort of like the um, like the great courses, the sort of iTunes U where you pay this this subscription and then you get access to lecture series from, you know, they have high profile academics from from all over the world. I know they have people from from Harvard, from Oxford, Cambridge. A lot of other great people. So I'll be recording some lectures for them too. So yeah, I'm just doing these sort of, uh, you know, adjacent to, 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 um, higher education, but I'm not pursuing like this sort of formal academic track. I'm not going to get a postdoc or anything like that. So, so a couple things about that. I, I'm a very auditory learner. I sat in so many mm-hmm. lectures over the years and learned, learned on my feet, studying cases in, in the halls of hospitals and things. And, uh, I was an early, uh, customer of great courses like right at their beginning mm-hmm. i was like oh this is interesting i don't know anything about egyptian history i'm gonna learn about that and yeah. uh and really devoured a ton of their stuff and lo and behold itunes you came along and for people who don't know what that was that was universities all over the world put their great lectures up online for free and you could just drop mm-hmm. in on everything and i and which i did for several years and then it went away <laughs> it just vanished uh, and now I guess it's coming back as a for-profit model with what you guys are doing, which I will happily pay for. It's it's yeah. well worth uh, the money spent in terms of expanding our brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll be one of the first to, to sign up when it finally launches. I think later this year, maybe the fall of this year. Uh, so yeah, that's the, you know, so, so I have a few different, different projects going. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been great. I'm, I'm so glad Dr. Drew to finally be done with my <laughs> bet, PhD and, and to be done with the, the, the PhD defense process. Yeah. I was, I was, I was nervous for, you know, I was nervous for the reasons, you know, anyone would be nervous yeah. in that situation, you know, to be sort of grilled and scrutinized, you know, yeah. this sort of culmination of four years of work. But I was also nervous because, uh, you know, I knew I knew one of the uh, one of the examiners was, uh, you know, very much uh, sort of politically, uh, you know, motivated and, you know, perhaps, you know, is aware of some of the writings that I've done, some of the things, you know, I know that he's tweeted, for example, about, um, you know, how how much he doesn't like uh, Jordan Peterson and some of these other psychologists out there. And, you know, I've, I've been on Jordan's podcast and I've talked to some of these other people. And so I, that going into that, I wasn't sure how he was going to evaluate me if he was going to be fair. But to my surprise, he was he was extremely fair. So this actually renewed some of my confidence in people's ability to be objective. Oh, you know, good. people can be political, but they can still sort of take a step back and evaluate the world. Oh, that's fairly. good news. But, you know, mm-hmm. back to your University of Aux, uh, Austin plan. I mean, you're really doing something new by going back to the old. <laughs> You're just doing mm. what, what scholarly <laughs> pursuits always were, right? I mean, you're just going to build yeah. a old-fashioned, liberal, artsy, evidence-based, you know, just yeah. pursuit of I the mean, truth. Pricing, uh, pursuit it's, of the it's truth. So, it's so weird. I mean, yeah. so I, I taught courses last summer. So last summer we had our inaugural summer program. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was, so we got some media coverage. And it was just so weird that some of these outlets were framing this as some – 
you know, politically fringe, you know, or, or you know, all, all the usual, you know, right wing this and that. And all it is is just, you know, most of the academics involved are sort of left or center left, just basically proponents of free speech. And like and the you were truth. saying earlier, and pursuit just, of the yeah, truth. pursuing the truth, yeah. interesting ideas, interesting information. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I, there was, there was, it's funny. So, so I've, I have been reading, you know, I, I keep up with this stuff, what's going on in higher ed. And there was a, a survey that came out in 2021 that found that uh, 82% of undergraduates report self-censoring. This was a nationwide I survey across the U.S. I saw that. Maybe I saw so that. Eight out of 10. Something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this was, you know, from, you know, the, the jump between 2019 so in 2019, the number was 60%. In 2021, it was 82%. So, you know, this massive increase. I mean, it was 60% is already high and then 82%. So I had 10 students uh, in my seminar in the summer program uh, last year. And I just decided to ask these these 10 students in this small seminar, you know, how many of you have self-censored at your uh, home institutions? And, you know, we had, we had students from, you know, a lot of good schools. You know, we have people from University of Chicago and Columbia and Vanderbilt. And I asked them, you know, what, uh, you know, do you self-censor? What, you know, how many of you... And nine out of the 10 students uh, raised their hands and said they self-censored uh, at their home campuses. And uh, yeah, that's just that just blows my mind, you know, because the university is the place where you shouldn't self-censor, you know, especially in an academic educational context. Right. Well, I, we saw it on display recently when the the Twitter employees were in front of the uh, Congress talking about how unrestrained free speech restricts speech. Did you see that? Mm. They, 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 yeah. they, Yoel, what's his name, got up there and said, oh, no, we, it is absolutely the case that if you, un, if you unleash free speech, people are going to be suppressed. It's like, mm. uh, no, no, people may not be happy about some of the free speech, but that's the whole point. I, yeah. I, how could he say something like that? Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, it, it's it's interesting to me how people fall for these um I mean, these, these it's sort of mind games, these language games. I mean, yeah, restricting free speech, you know, or, or rather like, yeah, allowing free speech to go on uninhibited somehow restricts speech. I mean, that just like anybody, you know, if you think about that for more than five seconds, it just makes no sense at all. But and, yeah, and by is, the way, I can, think the, of, I can think of a hundred spurious ways to do studies to su- to suggest that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like yeah. just do a questionnaire study. If uh, you see some extreme right wing opinion, does that make you afraid to express your opinion and likely not to? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But in yeah. reality, <laughs> people just get it on. They they they, they yeah. respond all over the place. We see it all the time. There's much more yeah. mixing up going on now because of the sort of lack of uh, guardrails on things. It seems seems more interesting to me. It's more entertaining. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is I mean, the university is supposed to be a place where, you know, everyone is supposed to express, I mean, online, too. I mean, just generally among among educated people, educated and curious people, you, you know, humility is important to understand that, you know, if, if you're unable to express certain ideas, you're going to be missing pieces of reality. Right. Like there's no well, sort of final yeah. word on what's true and what's well, not. Well, we all they need don't, to communicate. In, in a post-structural world, it doesn't matter. What matters is the hmm. subjective and the political. And and yeah, I know yeah. it's it's laughable. Yeah. Uh, the, the, that means yeah. science doesn't exist. That means your the microphone you're on doesn't exist. That means the phones don't work. It's just come on, give me a break. Yeah, but yeah, but that's that's, that's these and the French laugh at us. I don't know if you know how the French just think it's hysterical that Americans are preoccupied with philosophers from nearly a hundred years ago that they got rid of eighty years ago. Yeah, yeah, but it, I mean you know Foucault is the most cited yes, academic. Yes. In, in this country, in, in, Ireland, in this in, country, in the U.S., and he's, yeah, he, he is absolute garbage. Is not he? He believes yeah. that mental health 
Any brain disease is caused by institutionalization, essentially, is what his theory is. And I'm here to tell you, yeah. fuck you on that one. There's absolutely mm. – that is so dangerous to say things like that. That's how you end up with people in the street dying. But anyway, um, so I, I want to zero in on a couple of things here. Um, mm-hmm. You're in England now, yes? You're in, still in Cambridge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Cambridge. And, and I'll be staying your, here for a little while. One of your articles was America exports cancel culture to the world. Mm. I I always have the feeling that Britain gets there a little ahead of us and we then take it and amplify it. And then the Brits oh, interesting. go go and take it all the way home, typically. Just think about <laughs> th- think about what happens with like rock music and with mm. new so called new wave music. It's the British invasions. Things come over to this country culturally, and then they just poof, they they catch mm. wind. And and I I always felt like some of this cancel stuff kind of started at least in its infancy over there. Is there any evidence of that? Uh, I haven't seen any evidence of it originating in in the UK. I mean, they they do like generally. It seems like well. A lot of these ideas, and in that piece in particular, I discuss, you know, like political correctness and and this sort of like activism on campus. A lot of that originated, like, like you know, we were just talking about France. Uh, some of it originated in Germany, and uh, you know, Karl Marx, he was German. Foucault and all these guys, they were they were French, and yeah. So so a lot of these scholars in, in America sort of picked up these ideas from from the continent, and then you know, added their own sort of American twist to it. And then, yeah, it, it spread. It spread across, uh, you know, sort of, sort of making its way back. And now you see uh, some, some, some political leaders in in uh, in Europe actually being they're they're pushing back against some of it. I think uh, was, is it uh, Macron in, in in France? He's he's sort of taken a hardline stance against uh, you know political correctness or wokeness. But well, I, yeah, I knew the French really would. I knew the French yeah. would. The, the French youth will have none of it. They're, they're just like <laughs> well, I was. I was there. Uh, I mean, it's it's remarkable because I, you know I go I go to London you know at least every couple of weeks. Uh, it's only you know a fifty minute train ride from here, and you walk around London and it's you know you see of course you'll see a couple of Union Jacks, but you'll see a lot of you know the flags of you know the contemporary ideology, and then you go to um, to France. You know, I was in Paris just a few months ago, and I saw tons of French flags yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And I was shocked to see, and this was, you know, this was the summertime, you know, I, I was shocked to see zero uh, LGBT flags anywhere. Yeah. And, they, and they're pervasive in, in the UK and, and in the US as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I found those interesting. There were no like, you know, no BLM flags or any other sort of, you know, the only flag they flew was their own French flag. And there was something uh, sort of jarring about this to me to see uh, well, I, you know, I like would a, argue, a Western country like I, this. I would argue that the French have always been in favor of their freak flag, whatever it might be, right? They don't care. <laughs> but but yeah. gender is something they take very seriously and, mm. and have always. Uh, and their language yeah. is gendered. And, they, you know, they have a language police, right? The Académie Française is, 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 was, was set up by um, uh, Richelieu. He's the one that set mm. it up. And it's, it's to make sure the language is maintained, <laughs> that it's properly nourished. It's called the Académie mm. Française. I think it's in Ram or something. And it's uh, Rance, I guess they call it. And um, yeah, they they're very very serious about masculine and feminine terminology and things like that, and, and they won't dis- uh, consider anything else. The other thing they take very seriously is liberty. The youth take liberty mm. very seriously, and so the mm. idea that they were going to have mandated masks and mandated vaccines that had marginal utility or maybe none or maybe were dangerous, they were like they were outraged about that. That that's what mm. mobilized them, which I thought was kind of interesting. And yeah. uh, and then the Italians, it's Maloney, right? 
Yeah. 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 She's, yeah. It's all very interesting. Contentious. Yeah. This is, yeah, it is. According to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor. According to the 2020 report, nearly half the population are living in areas with unhealthy levels of ozone or air pollution. Nine out of 10 people breathe air that exceeds the World Health Organization pollution limits. Of course, we take about 20,000 breaths per day. And that's almost 3,000 gallons of possibly polluted air. And the number one allergy trigger is, of course, airborne allergens. Pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold. What is the solution? Well, I want to introduce you to an air purifier that has captured the attention of established media, such as CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor uses an ultra-HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses. Allergens can vary in size, of course, but the average pollen size is about 25 microns. Air Doctor virtually removes 100% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. We keep ours right by our TV. We don't even hear it when it's running. doesn't interfere with anything except it <laughs> interferes with my allergies, and so I don't sneeze so much when I'm watching TV. Air Doctor comes with no questions asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com. Use promo code DREW, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 40% off. You're saving up to 40% off. Lock this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com and use that promo code DREW. It is it's super interesting. Yeah, the, the cancel culture piece. I mean, that originated because, you know, I, I tell it in there. I did a story about how this guy from uh, the Netherlands, one of the one of the most popular news sites, he he wanted to actually do this, uh, this, this short piece on cancel culture. He interviewed me and, you know, it was it was a, a fairly popular clip. I think in, you know, this is the Netherlands, right? They got like 170,000 views on this video, which for them, that's, you know, that small population, 170,000. That's a lot of views. And then a day later, they took it down. And I, I shot him an email saying like, hey, why did you take down this video on cancel culture? And he basically said his editor told him it was too sympathetic to the targets of cancel culture, J.K. Rowling and all these people who, you know, the targets of cancellation campaigns. And the editor said, oh, this is, you know, you're, 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 you're painting these people in too sympathetic a light. And so they took a video down and I'm like, wait a minute. So you did a piece on cancel culture and it was canceled. Yeah, you should write another <laughs> and, piece. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And I'll like, you know, what? this is ridiculous. Right? Like I, I, I knew this stuff was happening in America. I knew it was happening in the UK. But the fact that this is happening in, in the Netherlands of all places. So that's, you know, that inspired that, you know, sort of like I can't believe, you know, this 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 toxic ideology in America is now now sort of flourishing elsewhere. It's spreading. But. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. So I think things are slowly starting to turn, resettle, settle down. You think? I don't know. It's it's sort of. Well, I think we we were sort of in this crazy like flux over the last maybe two and a half years. Uh, you know, COVID and the lockdowns and the you know protests and everything. And then I think we're we're sort of ebbing back into this. You know, we're, we're resettling somewhat. You're you're able to say things now that you couldn't have That's said true. say in the summer of 2020, in, including this conversation. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't have this one. right. Oh, yeah. but wait, by the way, it's, it, I did not know you were studying evolutionary psychology, I, which I'm a, mm -hmm. a huge fan of. And I understand it's criticized mm -hmm. for having sort of just so explanations. But as a biologist, when you answer questions about why certain mechanisms are the way they are, it's, it's what are the evolutionary pressures? And psychology mm -hmm. is just a, is a um, e um, 
emergent phenomenon from the brain, yeah. and therefore there's right. evolutionary pressures there. Um, are you having any trouble with your evolutionary psychology ideas? No, no, not 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 really. I mean, I know that there are sort of um, I think the the criticisms, you know, this is just how things go generally. But on social media, you know, you tweet something or share an article or share a study on evolutionary psychology and people will sort of criticize it and stuff. But within the I think within the academy um, and and in, you know, peer reviewed articles and journals and stuff, I've never seen any any serious um pressure against it or anything i mean i had um you know i just had lunch a few months ago uh with with david bust oh, who I know you've had on your show and you've spoken him. with love him yeah his work is amazing and yeah i mean he's you know i spoke with him and i asked him i asked him the same question because yeah, i wonder like am i am i missing something am i and, and he said you know it, it's sort of like, in his career it's sort of wax and wane you know some years it gets rough and then it kind of passes and then suddenly people get angry again mm. at the moment i think it's you know generally you know, there was a great paper last year from uh, this this uh, personality psychologist, Daniel Nettle, and the paper was, you know, basically suggesting like it, it, it's not even clear what a non-evolutionary psychology would look like. Right. It's like, you know, having a non-evolutionary biology, right. like you can't have it. <laughs> right? right. Our mental adaptations, our, our brains, our behavior, you know, the expressions of our thoughts and emotions and so forth. They, they, of course, they're subject to evolutionary pressures. Otherwise, nothing in psychology makes sense. Well, there are these weird sociological sort of or, or cultural uh, anthropologists that insists that everything is of a social origin, but what's the origin of the social phenomena, right? Yeah. What, what, are the, I mean, what function do they serve evolutionarily? That's, I, yes, there are memes and there are things that probably improve uh, survival on some basis or had at one time. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's evolutionary psychology. It's the same thing. Yeah, and it's interesting because evolutionary psychologists, they, at least to my knowledge, the you know, the, they've never. Um, I've never seen any evolutionary psychology uh, text that hasn't, you know, basically acknowledged that, of course, culture yeah. and social factors play a role, right? Like not yeah. every culture is the same. You you look across societies and, of course, there are going to be sort of different patterns of behavior and trends and norms and you know, various factors that are governing uh, our interactions. But, you know, evolutionary psychology focuses on some of the similarities and sort of these patterns that exist across time. And, you know, you're probably familiar with um, the Nordic paradox, you know, that basically, you know, gender egalitarian societies uh, that, that correlates with uh, larger sex differences between men and women. More, right? to so basically, more, towards, more towards the sort of um, traditional type uh, uh, jobs and roles. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, not just jobs and roles, right? So like, you know, en engineers, you know, the, the the countries that produce the most female engineers are the least gender equal. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and and it's not just with, with jobs. What's interesting is that it's, it's of course, with personality. So like the big five personality traits, uh, the, the differences get larger in, in Scandinavian countries, sort of the most gender equal countries in the world. Uh, but then even uh, physical traits like uh, the, uh, gender differences in height and weight and in blood pressure. And uh, in you know various you know like a, a circumference of various body parts and, and so forth, so so our anatomy changes even uh, in response to uh, to these gender differences or, or, or in, in response to um, to these sort of sociocultural factors. And you know, there, there's an evolutionary psychologist I like, Steve Stewart Williams. He wrote this great book called The Ape That Understood the Universe, which mm. I which I recommend. Mm. Uh, it's a sort of a, a, a primer on on evolutionary psychology, and and he uh, his line is. I, I hope I'm not butchering it, but it's something like, uh, you know, when you when you treat men and women differently, they become more the same. And when you treat men and women the same, they become more different. 
and that's sort of his finding interesting right so in in scandinavian countries men and women are you know treated about the same you know as, as much the same as any you know the, the, as any society right like they have you know political equality gender equality and so forth they've done the most they can to, to equalize things and yet when you measure the differences they're they're the largest uh, so so yeah, this is super interesting and and that is that is a separate phenomenon from the you know what's generally under the rubric of gene environment interaction right i mean nobody mm-hmm. says very few things are all gene very few things are all environment you know as, mm-hmm. as i used to say to my patients you know even if a, a piano falls on your head um yeah that's all environment but you have to have had a head and that's genes and so mm-hmm. you know what i mean there's some there's always some input from both and uh, yeah. w- what do you imagine i kind of have a number in my head about what the generally speaking when you look at psychological phenomena what how much what percentage is attributed to uh, on the basis of genetics alone versus mm. environment yeah well well at least um in in evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics research you know, they they don't actually measure uh, like individuals, right? Like um, you know, what percent of of Rob's uh, personality comes from nature, and what percentage of it comes from nurture? They yeah. the way that they they measure is is differences, right? Like distance from the mean, like averages between people. You know, so basically, you know, like what what percentage of of the variation between people's personalities is attributable to the environment versus versus genetics. And, you know, my understanding, you know, from, from reading Robert Plowman and other, other great behavioral geneticists, it seems to be, um, you know, basically, I mean, this is kind of a, it depends on, it depends on the trait, but overall it does seem to be about 50, 50. There are certain traits, um, like, like intelligence that may be as high as 80%, uh, uh, genes. And then, you know, there are, there are other things that seem to be more, uh, more related to, to environment. But, but the, the thing is like, even, even these, these traits are, um, responsive to yeah. environmental yes, input of course right so so an example that i like to use is is height right like yeah. you know it's, it's well, that's the one that i always go to that's the go-to even even the uh the social constructivists would yeah. would i think acknowledge that height has something to do with 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 why some people are taller than yeah. others yeah um and yet even here uh if you deprive people of food right an environmental factor they will be short and there was a really interesting uh paper uh, i read last year which found that um so at the moment uh so, so uh, before the the divide, before North North and South Korea divided, before the war, um, North Koreans were actually slightly taller than South Koreans, like Koreans that resided in the North, right? Because it wasn't North Korea at that point. But the Northerners were slightly taller than South Koreans, and today South Koreans are something like seven inches mm. taller than wow. North Koreans, right? And is this genes or environment? Well, in this case, it's clearly environment yeah. because the North Koreans are malnourished, yeah. right? And so even something like IQ, which is you know intelligence, it's extremely um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly, uh, it seems to be, uh, genetic, genetically, uh, um, uh, you know, basically most of your intelligence seems to be more, more genes rather than, rather than environment. Even, you know, if you, if you starve someone or you deprive them of books and, and so on and so forth, then of course, you know, their, their intelligence will, will diminish. Yeah. So it's, you know, like you said, it's a sort of an interaction. It's a gene environment interaction. It, we, I, I've noticed in psychiatric illness primarily is where I have my experience. And certainly in addiction, the, w- the way we say it is that the evidence suggests that gen- genes account for about 60% of the probability of developing the illness. The ge- uh, mm. gen- genetics alone are about 60%. The, the fun- yeah, and they are – with certain psychiatric disorders, addiction being one of them, it's, it's a necessary but not sufficient 
component of the disease. Like you don't you don't really get addiction unless you have the genetic heritage for it. And yeah. um, and even then, it's it's a still you need environmental input for the thing to be lit up. Yeah, yeah, we have these propensities, but yeah, you have to be in the right environment. I mean, it's interesting. Something like, uh, you know, I think people misunderstand uh, uh, like genetic contribution to human traits. So, you know, people will say, you know, obesity or some or or tobacco use. You know, these things are are extremely heritable. I mean, mm-hmm. tobacco use is something like sixty percent heritable, and so is so is obesity. It's around sixty percent uh, uh, genetic contribution. Uh, but in, uh, you know, a subsistence, small-scale hunter-gatherer society, uh, despite the fact that obesity is extremely heritable, you're not going to see many obese people because right. they're in this environment where right. food is scarce. Right. Um, and, and tobacco use, too. I mean, this is extremely heritable, but uh, tobacco use has diminished because, you know, culture changes over time. And, you know, we've basically enacted more penalties and more social statement stigma and so forth. Yeah, like crazy. And, uh, so, so yeah, people people will change their behavior despite having this sort of propensity towards towards something. Yeah, I, Adam Adam likes playing a video of uh, a new what is she a, a nutrition czar or something, Gary? She's she's I, a member of the the new uh, administration board that's advising on nutrition. Uh, yeah. Who said what? Eighty five percent is genetics. Was that her quote? Uh, yeah, it was something along the lines of that. Like, it, don't expect anybody ever to lose weight if they're obese because they're eighty five percent of it's accounted for on the basis of genes. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's totally. I mean, it's it's clearly um, untrue, right? I mean, yes. just just because something something has a genetic factor, genetic contribution, doesn't mean that it's it. You can't you can't change it with the environment. It just means it, it may be more difficult for some people than others, but that doesn't mean it's it's impossible. Right. I mean, this is like uh, like you know, you, you mentioned. Um, uh, certain certain sort of mental conditions are are um, are genetics, uh, you know, uh, largely largely uh, genetics are largely responsible. But then, w- would people say, well, there's nothing you can do, right? So, so someone right. has depression, yeah, right? Is it like, well, you have depression yeah. and it's you know, say seventy percent heritable. Well, you know, let's just throw up our hands and say, well, anyone who has depression can't be treated because it's because you know, it's genetics. genes, right? Exactly. A, a <laughs> it has nothing to do with whether or not it's treatable, and B genes aren't destiny. Genes are not right. destiny, yep. and uh, mm-hmm. they they are. It means you actually have to work harder, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, there's uh, there's a book uh, or, or not. Uh, by the way, I mean, if you have a specific <laughs> genetic thing, maybe we can get in there and adjust yeah. that biology very easily, and you don't have yeah. to work harder. You know, maybe it's easier. Yeah, yeah. It can go both yeah. ways. Yeah, I mean, of course, it depends, right? It depends on like you know if it's if it's cancer or if it's certain like obviously like no matter how much effort you put in, there are certain things that that are sort of out of your hands. But for things like like obesity or depression, there are certain choices you can make. And and for things, yeah, like like weight loss. Um, in his book Blueprint, uh, the behavioral geneticist Robert Plumman writes about uh, you know he did uh, I think he he mapped out his um, like genetic propensity. He had this measured somehow for for obesity, and his genetic um, propensity for obesity was you know he was like. I think the 90th percentile. Mm. And he used this information to basically uh, modify his diet and exercise. And he's like, no, that just means I have to work a little harder and sort of, you know, be a little bit more careful about what I eat. And, you know, that's so so people have different response. I I think even this is probably um, uh, a little bit, you know, genetics and a little bit environment are response to this kind of information, because some people read that and they think, "Uh, well, I guess I can just eat whatever because it's all genes anyway. And other people read it and think, oh, I have to work harder and do something else. Well, there's a new cultural overlay, which is why should I bother? why should I bother? This is a desirable state. This is be- mm. this is beautiful, desirable. It's who I am, uh, and right. it, and, it, and it actually has social ca- credibility now. Social uh, 
you, you get you get social. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You have cachet, cachet or, or improvement. Credit, yeah, yeah. credit. Social. Clout. Clout, yeah. It gives you mm. status, social status. Yeah, if you right. say, hey, I'm fat, I'm beautiful, and that's just the way it is. And I, I don't object to that. I, I really don't object to it in a philosophical standpoint. I worry about it from a medical standpoint. Did you see um, the Grammys? Yeah. Did you see Lizzo's performance and her introduction? Yeah. I was stunned watching that because it, when she announced how old she was, do you, do you, did you catch that I part? Know, no. She was talking about how she had been uh, out here acting as a, a vicious woman or whatever her, what, you know, a bad bitch, whatever her terminology was for <laughs> yeah. 10 years since I was 10. She was 20 years old. Oof. And I wish would have never guessed that. I was, I was I shocked she was like by 35 that. Or yeah, something. same. Yeah. I, I would have, I wouldn't have been shocked if you had said 45. And what? And are you shocked because she looks older, or are you shocked? I, she... I'm sure this is the wrong thing to say, but <laughs> how did that happen in 20 years? How did she get so overweight? Mm. Yeah. Oh, that that gets going early sometimes, you know. I, and that has yes. a, that, it. Mean my eye to suggest that's kind of a genetic thing we're looking at there for sure. I'm sure um, that's a component of it. And, but and, I was and just... and she doesn't want to. She likes it the way she is, and good for her. I God bless her. I, yeah. I I have no problem with that. I just worry about health and stuff like that. Same. Um, that's that's and, my concern. And I, and I worry that a lot of – here's what really where it gets pernicious is a lot of other people will follow down that path through profoundly um, problematic nutritional intake, profoundly you know malnutritional – by mal, I mean bad – Choices. I mean, stand in line sometime at a Seven Eleven and watch what people buy. You'll you'll be stunned. It's yeah. shocking to me. And and if you use that as justification for these horrible dietary choices, that that now I got a problem. The other thing that I find mm. really weird about the obesity stuff: no one ever talks about the effects of trauma ever. And mm. it's a very significant feature in in why people do that. The old, the old psychoanalyst had a term for it. I forget what it was. It was sort of to have a big body to keep people away so they protect themselves uh, and oh, feel right. bigger and less small and that kind of thing. And and it's certainly, you know, you can eat to regulate emotions, right? And that's right. part of trauma is about dysregulation. And uh, mm. that never gets brought up. Uh, and a lot mm. of the patients that I deal with that have problematic weight issues and, and want to change it have, have trauma. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there is a, a relationship there between sort of increasing levels of trauma and obesity. If anyone's yes. ever, I've never I'm seen sure. any research I'm, I'm on certain. this. But, I guarantee you it's yeah. there. Guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, just no one ever yeah. talks about it. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying it's the whole story. I'm just saying I guarantee you that's another influence we don't talk about. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. And of course, it covers every sales channel from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. This is the future, but I love it for that. It's packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. Shopify gives you complete control of your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills or design or code. And thanks to 24-7 Help, an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. They've got you every step of the way. And again, remember that selling across social media marketplaces. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Drew, all lowercase. Again, that is shopify.com slash Drew to take your business to the next level today. One more time, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y, shopify.com slash D-R-E-W, all lowercase. 
I did yeah. read a sociological study, and, I, and by the way, I'm not giving this credence. I'm not saying it is so uh, because it doesn't fit for me. But the, the one – this was a few years ago. I was reading something that said they tried to control for all the variables to try to figure out what was contributing because kids' weight suddenly went up in a certain period of history. And the mm-hmm. only thing – the only uh, independent variable they could find was mom's working Mom's leaving the home. Oh, right. That, and, and it may be as simple as just not teaching kids how to eat right or something or they're busy or whatever. I, I don't know what mm. – you know, it's not, it's not – I don't want to lay the blame at mom, certainly. I don't want to do that. But maybe that we can tease out if we actually looked at it carefully, you could tease out what was missing that could be replaced perhaps that would make things mm. better. You know, it may not just be that mom's not there. Maybe that mom's not – Cooking certain kinds of meals, or maybe you know, leaning on fast foods a little more, something like right. that. Or well, what, what, like I, I would be curious to know, like what what was the you know, if, if you, I'm not, I'd imagine that the study was, you know, they had some kids, you know, with their moms, and yeah. some kids maybe in daycare, another situation. Yeah. But I, I'd be curious to know the conditions of those those other situations. I mean. You know, like daycare is not, you know, like like a bunch of other like, you know, little kids, they can be cruel, they can be mean, they can be vicious. And especially, you know, some of the, you know, if there's not enough adult oversight and supervision, you know, like I could imagine, you know, for a little kid, that's not. Well, you're you know, saying much too, too much daycare parents. becomes potential marker for trauma, right? Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen research indicates it's suggestive. I've never, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is, you know, how, if this has been replicated and how firm this finding is, but I have seen research indicating that daycare can be uh, detrimental for, for kids. But, so. but isn't that more a function of how we manage our daycare systems? Because some countries Probably, do you know, have good daycare I'm systems. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, it's really I'm an sure indictment yeah. of what we're doing, not necessarily of daycare per se. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I think generally there was a, there was some, some interesting research coming out uh, from, from the lockdowns as well that, like I think you know, on balance, they were they were a net negative for for kids. Um, but there was some some interesting work early on in the lockdown. I think before people sort of became um, you know overwhelmed with it. But in the early days of the lockdown, there was research indicating that kids were actually happier. And uh, and some of this. So, so Erica Christakis, uh, she's a child development expert, um, formerly at Yale. She wrote this piece in the Atlantic uh, in the early days of the lockdown, basically saying that there's something sort of historically odd about grouping a bunch of kids of the same age together in the same enclosed space and expecting them to just sort of get along. Uh, usually, instead, what, what tends to happen is, you know, like all of the kids that, you know, things kids uh, tend to do, you know, bullying, fighting, backbiting, rumors, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, whereas historically, you know, usually kids had, you know, older siblings, you know, older kids, younger kids, parents, you know, adults were around, and there was just sort of more oversight and different kinds of people around. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the work in, in social psychology indicates that, you know, the people who we are the most competitive against and the people who we are most likely to view as our rivals are people who are very similar to ourselves. Yeah. You know, this, this is also sort of connected to, to uh, the medic theory, you know, Rene Girard stuff, too, that our, our sort of rivals tend to be, you know, someone who's roughly the same age, same gender, same size. You know, they, those are the people who we sort of imitate and compete against. And, you know, when you have a bunch of kids in the same shared space like that, it's different than if you have, you know, different kids of different ages and, and different adults around. Although if you uh, adhere to Steven Pinker, you know, aggression and violence is going down. Intellect is kind of going up or there's certainly, you know, technology is going up. So there's – it's not – 
all yeah. bad. I, you know, yeah. I, it's hard to well, say. Well, it depends on. I, I think like the, the his measurements are sort of like overt levels of violence, right? Like a uh, homicide and and physical assaults yeah. and things that can get you thrown in in prison, right? Like actual uh, egregious acts of violence. But you know, I, I don't know if he actually looked at you know the things that you and I are, are sort of touching on mm-hmm. here about like interpersonal traumas and and parenthood and those kinds of things that are sort of I think a little bit less visible to to the eye at first glance. You know, I think maybe some of those things may be rising. Did you see? I, I uh, Jonathan Haidt just wrote this piece in Substack. Um, he just launched his uh, Substack I think yesterday, and he found that rates of anxiety and depression among U.S. undergraduates doubled in the last uh, fifteen oh, yeah. years. Well, particularly <laughs> the last three. Years. Easy. Particularly last three years, they were already bad, yeah, yeah. and then they just went. Well, that's, skyrocketed. that's the interesting thing is like he so so the the the, the figure that he shared, um, you know, it, it tracked between 2009 and 2019. It doubled, right? Between, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So so in that ten years, so this was pre-COVID, pre-lockdowns, pre-everything, yeah. and I'm sure like over the last three years, it's gotten even worse. And you know, I, I'd be curious to hear, you know, Pinker uh, or or anyone else who sort of. Has 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 written on this sort of uh, you know this long view of progress, what they would make of of some of these uh, mental health issues that a lot of people are suffering from. It'd be very interesting, yeah. Because I, 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 everyone knows it, everyone sees it. Whenever I talk to a psychiatric colleague that does adolescent or child psychiatry, they always go just anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression. All it's all we're seeing, and and you can't, and there are enough psychiatrists, and you can't get them to see anybody because they're all overwhelmed, completely. Yeah, Whether you can't get somebody in. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Why do you think the Jordan Petersons of the world get such uh, aggression towards them? Because I, I, I found Jordan probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago maybe, mm. when he first put up – You know, I, I was the guy, like I said, going around through iTunes U and, and getting mm. the great courses and stuff. And he put up a series of free courses that to, to my eye were sort of – trying to bring religion, anthropology, and psychology kind of together, which I'm always looking for ways to bring anthropology and psychology together. So I got very interested in what he was doing. It was called Maps of Meaning. This was his original mm. little podcast series. It was quite good. Very, you know, um, Judeo-Christian-centric, you know, but but had a Jungian flavor to it and was tried to be universalizing in terms of what he was saying. And I just thought it was fantastic. And, and, and then all of a sudden, fast forward two years, he takes issue with the mandated speech and all of a sudden hmm. becomes a horrible human being because of that. Well, what, right. what, what is that? What do you think? Why is he a horrible person? I, again, yeah, I'm biased uh, by my original <laughs> relationship with him, which was very positive. Yeah. 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 Well, I think I'm, you know, I, I'm probably in a, in a similar position because so, so Jordan was actually supposed to be a guest research fellow here at Cambridge back in 2019 and, you know, some activists protested, they got some petitions going, you know, they did their whole, you know, song and dance, and they got him disinvited. And this was, you know, this was infuriating to me. And so I, I wrote, uh, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times challenging the university's decision to do this. Um, and, you know, in that piece, I discussed, you know, like, you know, I had, you know, Jordan has a positive, he's had a positive impact on a lot of people and me included. So, so the way I discovered him, I was, I think this was 2016. This was like, right. This might've been like six months before all that stuff came out with the, you know, the, the speech codes in Canada and the stuff that he became famous for initially. Um, but I Googled, you know, I was just Googling and clicking around how to get into good psychology PhD programs. And there was this video that came up of of him, um, and basically it was like a three hour long video. I think he he held it at the University of Toronto. This sort of Q and A, 
And it was three hours long and just, you know, basically answering questions of how to get into P and I listened to the whole thing and it was really useful. You know, it was the sort of stern, you know, the, you know, the Jordan Peterson persona, he was, you know, very much like, you know, you, you need to get good grades, you yeah. need to get good scores, like yeah. you need to get well, your act together, that's, 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 like you have to be disciplined. That's academia generally. And, uh, yeah. He was like, you know, you can't, you can't mess around. Like you can't spend your undergrad drinking and partying if you want to get into a good grad school. Yeah. Like, you can do that sometimes, but you can't spend the whole four years doing that if, that's you're, right. if you're serious. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was motivating for me. And yeah, it's just, it's just been crazy to see just, you know, I, I think he's, my, my sense is that he, he sort of has the, uh, the credentials and the respectability of, of someone. So I think there are two things. So, so one is the sort of credentials and respectability, right? He was, he was a university professor. He, um, you know, was like a, a clearly respected, mm -hmm. uh, and esteemed researcher. You know, he's, you know, look at his Google Scholar profile. He's, you know, done, done plenty of research studies and so on and so forth. Um, but then the other thing is I think they got mad at him because he sort of bypassed the gatekeepers by going straight to YouTube. And so for that reason, right, like they, they weren't able to control his message. And so by going straight to YouTube, and by being a sort of interesting uh, and and charismatic speaker and so forth, I think they sort of the the legacy institutions sort of circled the wagons around him and tried to basically paint him as you know a bad person because they didn't want people to. You know, I think that the fear for a lot of these institutions is, you know, someone like Jordan Peterson comes out, starts saying things that they disagree with, and then people start to start to speak to one another and acknowledge it. But if the, you know, if 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 uh, if a certain, you know, legacy institution says, you know, this person is bad, right. then I'll be more reluctant to ask, you know, you or my friends or someone else about him. This is happening with Rogan too. I've, I've seen this happen multiple times where. Um, I mean, he's he's the number one podcaster in the world, right? So it's yeah. like, of course, people listen to him. But if someone says they listen to him, suddenly I've seen this most mostly in like academic circles, which is you know its own sort of unique environment. But someone says, "Oh yeah, I listen to Joe Rogan," and people are like, "Huh? Ugh. You listen to that guy? Oh, Ugh. how could you? How could you listen to that?" Oh, you know? I love when people and have strong opinions such, about things yeah, they've never you, heard. They've never yeah, listened. Exactly. That's the other thing. How they could you do that? Yeah, it's like it's yeah, just, I saw it's just crazy. The day. I, oh, I was I was I've been interviewing some. You know, sort of outcast from uh, the mainstream medical opinions. You know, people like McCullough mm -hmm. and Malone. I'm, I'm interviewing all these people to see what I can learn from them. And mm -hmm. uh, people have these. Some of them are kind of peripheral figures, and people are like, "Oh, this is a horrible whatever." They put in a whole bunch of shibboleths in there about what this person is. Yeah. And I just thought, you've never, you, I know for sure you've not heard this person because I, I yeah. talked to him for an hour, and this is not who that is. And yeah, it's deeply disturbing. Yeah. That, that's that's yeah. that's uh, prejudice. That's prejudice. Straight yeah, up, yeah. So straight so up, it's straight up the bigotry. Straight up. Yeah, yeah. You look at an outlet; they say, uh, you know, Rogan or whoever is 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 you know X Y Z. This bad person, and that sort of gets the message out that you're not allowed to talk about this person or openly express your you know that you listen to them or that you enjoy listening to their shows or or what have you. And it's yeah, it's totally. I mean, it's 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 crazy. I think um, there's this. I think there's a there's an anxiety or something in these legacy institutions. You know, they, they did this with Substack too. Uh, when Substack launched a couple of years ago, it was like every six months, another hit piece about how, you know, Substack is spreading disinformation or, you know, right. you should be wary about like what you read on there and so on. And um, I mean, what's funny is that like a lot of these, the same people who were criticizing Substack are now starting their own Substack. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. Yeah. But any, any alternative um, avenue to, to get your message out there or to uh, have interesting conversations, it's just you know pe uh, people who are yeah I, I hope they destroy old, old I, they, they just destroy their business model that's all that, that's the it only that's what's, the, it's the only yeah. possible solution to this is that they just get destroyed and and I, yeah. I realize that you know because narcissism is sort of hiding underneath so much of this stuff.
stuff, envy, projection, aggression, you know, all this is all narcissism stuff. And I started thinking about how we dealt with patients like that. I, I only have my experience of 30 years in a psychiatric hospital. And what we would do with those patients is give them a show of force. We would, we would stand mm-hmm. a unified front and go, hey, stop it. Cut it out. And, and they, we immediately, they're like, oh, I'm wounded. I'm so wounded. Yeah, I didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where it goes. Watch. You see mm-hmm. if that doesn't happen here as people start to become less and less tolerant of this stuff. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, you've probably seen some of this where you're like narcissism on the rise. And I know oh, actually yeah. you, you know, you, know, you were, wrote about you were, a long you time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. I saw yeah, it. Was, saw it yeah. happen. I, 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 told, I, I told you the story, yeah. but I, I saw the, the diagnostic sheets when I arrived, you know, in 1984. All cluster, the, the uh, personality access to diagnoses were all over the place all the time. I saw all kinds of dependent and OCD and schizoids and all kinds of stuff. By 1988, I noticed, holy shit, this all borderline sociopath, narcissist. And by the 90s, it was only narcissist, borderline <laughs> sociopath. And it's remained yeah. that way ever since. Uh, yeah. And so to the extent that there is a personality diagnosis, those are the ones. And and to be fair, uh, again, I don't think any, diag- any, any personality trait or uh, condition – is purely pejorative. It can have assets, right? If you're a fighter pilot, I want you to be narcissistic as hell. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's not pure negative. So please don't get stuck in the pejorative uh, when we talk about these personalities. And all of us have adopted a certain amount of narcissism as a result of the whatever's been happening uh, mm-hmm. seemingly now worldwide, which is sort of wild and incredible to me. <laughs> I'm Lola Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. And we're the hosts of Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power. Now on Podcast One. We're real-life cult survivors. And we're here to tell you anyone can join a cult. If you've ever dived headfirst into a new self-help program. Or believed wholeheartedly in a spiritual practice. Or even just trusted someone with your life. Guess what? You're just as susceptible as everyone else. No one is safe, especially not Megan. I'm the most susceptible. We want to debunk the myth that people who join cults are uneducated or naive or broken because anyone can be manipulated by a narcissist or feel good in a new group they've joined and we should know we both have been join us every week as we explore the world of extreme belief talk to survivors and experts and share our own experiences with cults and the abuse of power don't be fooled you might be next get new episodes of trust me every wednesday on podcast one spotify apple podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts Let, let me I – have, I have another thing I want to get into and I'm sort of running low on time. So I want to get right to this, which is why white privilege is wrong. Tell me why that mm. is. Yeah, I wrote a couple of pieces in in Colette with my uh, co-author Vincent Harnam. And yeah, I mean at that point, this – yeah, we, we – you know, we kept seeing this this term tossed around, white privilege and – I mean, it, it, it struck us as, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's also a, you know, he's a criminologist. He's well-versed in, in statistics and social science and so forth. And, you know, I, I do my stuff in psychology and we're both thinking to ourselves, like, this is just, I mean, it's, it's naive to attribute um, disparities and all outcomes to one thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's naive. It's, it's misguided. It's, and, and, and it's just empirically un, un, wrong. Unhelpful. And so, yeah, it's, and yeah, it's unhelpful too. And so, yeah, we dug into the research and and you know basically found like you know if I mean the, the, to me that like the simplest 
the simplest example of how like the whole white privilege idea is is flawed is the fact that you know if you if you look at you know various measures of success whether it's sort of education or income or family formation or divorce rates um you know in in the US Asian Americans outperform whites everybody, basically everybody, everything yeah. i mean it's it's so bad that and, and uh, i'm not know, sure yeah. anybody is discriminated yeah. against more than Asians maybe obese people yeah. obese people well yeah. <laughs> well i mean it's 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 interesting right like, i mean you're probably aware, like the, a lot a lot of the universities now are are openly discriminating against yeah, Asian American applicants yeah. because they're too successful yes. right like yeah. if they were to to judge solely on grades and test scores you know harvard would be something like 50 to 60 percent Asian. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, so, so this in itself, and it's funny. So it's, you know, you know, when we shared this information, some people countered with saying like, well, is there not a selection effect issue such that, you know, the immigrants who moved to the U S and their, and their children, it's a select group of people from Asia, you know, people, maybe people who are particularly ambitious or particularly interested in education who want a good life. And so on, this isn't like representative of Asians in general, but I think like, okay, so now you're saying it's not white privilege. Now you're saying it's ambition. Now you're saying it's well, interesting but, education, but, but that's sort of an immigrant profile, right? I mean, Im immigrants yeah. generally really kind of fit that sort of which yeah. is yeah, yeah you know and remember that I, there yeah. was two Yale law professors that uh, she was Chinese and he was Jewish that uh, looked around their classroom and started see, kept seeing certain immigrant patterns there and they went and yeah. studied it and they found that they published it and were of course vilified for it but what they mm -hmm. found was that uh, delay gratification mm -hmm. uh, focus on uh, education and special purpose, like you're here, you're yeah. here to represent the family. You're you're the generation that's going to make it. We're sacrificing everything for you, and so it's you know all the the basic stuff that that Jordan Peterson yeah. was saying in his three hour lecture. You know, work hard, yeah. study hard, delay gratification, and uh, yeah. ha be be clear it's what you want to do and have a reason why and know why you're doing it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we looked at we looked at this for uh, for for you know immigrant groups as well from Latin America, from from Africa. You know, like uh, immigrants from Kenya and Ghana and so forth, like they, they also, in terms of education, outperformed uh, white Americans. Yep. And well, so, by the way, the groups you know, were the groups that they yeah. saw were Nigerians, Mormons, yeah. Chinese, and Jews. Those were the groups they kept. Oh, saying. interesting. And, and uh, yeah. that was that was like ten years ago. So who it might be a different group yeah. now, right? It could be easily yeah, yeah. or yeah. more diverse and, group. Yeah. So the whole white privilege idea, I mean, it's, it's totally flawed. It's just, you know, it, it, like you can't, you can't say that white privilege gives you some kind of special powers. And then, and then you just look at like one look at the data and show that like, actually white people are kind of in the middle in yeah. terms of, uh, of, of success on various metrics. I, right? I do, I do so. defend the idea though of, um, sort of, it's sort of be called white supremacy, but that mm -hmm. unfortunate or unfortunate terms, it's sort of Eurocentric view of the world, mm -hmm. right? That, that, that sort of there's a cultural sort of history here mm -hmm. of, of this is, this is a British, you know, this is British institutions we set up here. That's why, that's why they've lasted so long. And these were yeah. ideas from continental Europe and Britain. And you know, there's a, there's a Euro, you know, and Eurocentric sort of Bias, I, I get that. I uh, read, read Frederick Douglass's words. It, it really, he mm. really talks to it so vividly, and it's really helped me to pull the scales away from my eyes a little bit. And it's just about mm. being empathic. It's really about being clear mm. and empathic and paying attention. It really, that's really what we have to do, and and yeah. not always see things from our cultural, historical, personal perspective. And to be fair, I'm an immigrant family, you know, from the Holodomor, right? And so these families mm. that came from trauma, uh, they they got a lot of energy <laughs> you know going forward yeah. yeah 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 i mean it's it's interesting i mean like that, that i agree with that you know there is like a sort of you know a, a cultural you know like, there's a sort of culture embedded in the institutions and so forth 
But, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, practical everyday realities, I mean, the likelihood of, you know, all things being equal for for almost every, um, you know, uh, seat at, at, at a university or occupational position and so on and so forth. I mean, actually, I mean, if, if, if anything, <laughs> in a lot of places, just being like a like a regular white guy, that's actually going to hurt you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's to the point now, like, you know, I, I, I'm hearing these stories, Dr. Drew, of like kids, like white kids pretending to be Hispanic oh, on all the their time. applications all the time. now. I mean, I know people who pretend to be because they don't check. Listen, right? so I know I, people my, who apply for internships my, they pretend have, to be LGBT. I have, you know, kids getting into, you know, white male sons going into the workforce and they're realizing that uh, employment is sort of not for them. They're going to have mm. to be entrepreneurial because they go all the way to the back of the line in spite of mm. all their pedigrees and everything else. Just mm-mm, not. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. And, so. and so the, probably in some contexts, maybe like, you know, what you're saying, you know, about like maybe maybe like having that outlook or having that cultural if there's some kind of cultural benefit. But I think like, look, it's gold. It's a gold. It's gold. Just treat other yeah, people yeah. the way you want to be treated and pay attention to what yeah. their perspective and experience has been. It's all, mm. you know, pay attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob, mm-hmm. I have to wrap this up. It's robkhenderson.substack.com. I feel like we should do a couple more <laughs> visits just to get it, too much stuff accumulates before, you know, across the months between when I speak to you amongst, uh, you know, and uh, yeah. I can talk to you all day. I, I We should do like a I'd love to do just a talk just on evolutionary psychology because there, there's just so much there that people when you when you explain it to them, that kind of it helps them. The light goes off in their yeah. head about why people are the way they are and you know how to look at things. I, in fact, I was just mm-hmm. listening to Lex Friedman's. Uh, he's interviewing a psychiatrist right now. A couple of weeks ago, he was. And I'm sort of digging through it now, and he has he's having real trouble with the basics of psychology. It's kind of shocking to me. This guy's this brilliant uh-huh. guy, and he's not used to thinking psychologically. I think we got to get better at educating people about human psychology and how, how things work. Yeah. 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 It's, it was, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got into it is because it, it helped me to understand human nature so much better to, to understand the conditions in which our minds and our bodies evolved and the mental adaptations that arose in, you know, in, in, in the early human environment. So yeah, yeah. Evolutionary psychology is you know, to me one of the most fascinating, you know, fascinating fields you can learn about. I agree. Follow Rob on Twitter, Rob K Henderson, and also the website, Rob K Henderson.com. And, uh, Look for the lectures, I guess, uh, with the Jordan Peterson. Uh, that got, yeah, they got yeah, a name. Uh, so the the uh, it's it's called Peterson Academy. Okay. Uh, not exactly sure when they're when they're launching. Sometime sometime this year, but I'll, I'll make a big announcement too on my Twitter account. Great, Rob. Thanks as always. Appreciate you being here, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Doctor Drew. All right, we'll see you all next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All month long on Pluto TV, stream the biggest Tyler Perry movies free. Watch your favorites like Medea's Witness Protection and Medea's Big Happy Family. Join Tyler Perry as he goes on a couples retreat with Sharon Leal in Why Did I Get Married? Or Idris Elba and Gabrielle Union in the Tyler Perry directed film Daddy's Little Girls. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.